Hi, this is Sean Asher and welcome to OnSite. This is going to be my weekly podcast where I get to spend time talking to some awesome people who are involved in new development across cities in the world. I'm very lucky because I get to see and meet a lot of these people who are shaping the skylines of our cities. And what I hope this does is enlightens you and gives you a little bit of a look into the lives and minds of some of these great people who shape our cities. So I'm very excited to bring this to you. It should be fun and I hope you enjoy it. So today I'm speaking with Jeff Levine. I've known Jeff for more than 20 years. Uh, He's a very colorful guy, a creative guy. What I really love about Jeff is he's no bullshit. He tells it to you the way it is and I really respect that about him. Um, I think of him as a pioneer because he's really been at the forefront of a lot of the development in New York City. He is an innovator. Uh, He is involved in affordable housing, luxury housing, student housing, hotels, senior living. He's done healthcare facilities and he's developed millions of square feet of commercial, retail, office and institutional space. He's almost done it all. And he's been a pioneer Uh, He was the first guy really to go and bring luxury housing to the waterfront in Williamsburg uh, with his project, The Edge, which was one and a half million square feet of a mixed-use project, which consisted of 2,000 residential units, 60,000 square feet of retail, parking. He was the first project to really incorporate a water taxi to Manhattan and a pedestrian esplanade. Very, very pioneering. He was the first guy to build a a luxury rental in West Chelsea, before West Chelsea was West Chelsea, uh, before the Highline was a thing. So yeah, he's definitely a pioneer. I'd love to know where he thinks the next neighborhood is, uh, like we all would. Uh, He's also involved in a lot of different committees. He's on the uh, Real Estate Board of New York's Executive Committee. He's the Vice Chair of the Associated Builders and Owners of Greater New York. He was awarded Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year. He's on the National Home Association of Home Builders, Affordable Builder of the Year Award, and uh, just an all-around great guy. So I have the pleasure of sitting down with him today. should be fun, and I hope you enjoy it. Jeff, welcome to OnSite. You are my guinea pig, so to speak. This is the first installment Thank you. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to hear that I'm number one on the podcast. You are. Uh, it's an honor of, you know, you're the maiden maiden voyage, so we better not screw this up. <laughs> I, I, will, I will try my best. That, well, it's mostly going to be me um, who would <laughs> screw it up. But So is it Jeff or Jeffrey? Well, my given name is Jeffrey, but my friends all call me Jeff. All right. So I'll hopefully I'll call you Jeff and um, be presumptuous to assume we're friends because uh, we've known each other for probably more than 20 years. Um, I remember interviewing you at your project, The Edge, in Williamsburg, almost, you know, 15 years ago on Core Talks. And uh, we were talking about Williamsburg and how you were a pioneer in that market. And uh, maybe we could go back a little bit before we talk about you being pioneering in neighborhoods, talk about what got you into this business. Uh, is this something when you grew up that you really decided you wanted to be in? Absolutely. I was very fortunate that I found my calling, so to speak, at a very young age. After having grown up in Brooklyn, 
at the age of about 15 years old, I moved out to Queens. I moved to the Bayside Douglaston area, thus the name Douglaston Development. And in the summers of my high school at Cardoza High School, I worked for the fathers of my friends who were generally in the construction business. So I worked for Joey Mastrantoni's uncle in the roofing business, and then I worked for Albert Natanacola in the concrete business, and I very much enjoyed the physical aspects and the accomplishment of creating and building, uh, which basically carved out my decision to attend City College Architecture at night so I could pursue that. So this is something you've had a passion for since you since the age of 15. What was your first like foray into being a developer? Like how, how does that transition from learning and getting hands-on experience, how do you transition into that? Don't you need a lot of money, large amounts of equity to uh, become a developer? Well, initially, I did not come out of the gate as a developer. Upon graduating City College Architecture at night, actually prior to that, I responded to an ad in the New York Times. It was 1974, and if you remember, New York City at that point was at the peak of its financial problems. President Ford, on the cover of the New York Post, sent a message to New York, which essentially said, Ford to New York, drop dead. I don't know if you're old enough to remember that. That having been said, when I graduated, I, I answered an ad in the New York Times, actually before I graduated, and I went to work for a developer and, uh, by the name of Herbert Mandel, whose father, Henry Mandel, was one of the preeminent developers in New York City, going back to the Roaring Twenties up until the Great Depression. Of course, there's a lesson to be learned there when he went broke. But he built, among other things, the largest residential development in the world to that time, London Terrace, which was on the property of the Moore Farm, which was uh, one of the descendants of which was Charles Moore, who wrote The Night Before Christmas. He built one Pershing Square over there at 42nd Street. He built the uh, Chelsea uh, Corners. It was So I went to work for Herb Mandel as an assistant super basically in about 1974, 75, while I was still finishing City College Architecture. And I continued my great appreciation for the business of building. In about 1979, Mandel decided that uh, he had had enough. He sold his portfolio. He wanted me to stay with him to manage what he continued. And I made the decision in 79 at the ripe age of about 25 years old that since I was not yet married to my beautiful wife, Randy, of 37 years now, that it was probably a good time for me to try my hand at being in business because while working for Mandel, I must tell you, I saw quite a bit and I actually had the opportunity in my spare time to repair fire damage in an apartment at a building that he owned at 99 Bank Street. And in my spare time, while I worked full-time during the day for him, I repaired an apartment and I saw how much money could be made as a contractor. So I, in 79, 40 years ago, hung up the shingle as a general contractor under the name of Levine Builders, very original, I thought. And I started doing contracting. That did, contract did you have any experience at the time other than that brief experience to be a contractor? 
Well, I had worked in the trades. I had observed all the trades. I worked as an assistant super for the last four or five years for Herb Mandel, essentially. So I had a very broad knowledge in industry, and I had what was very important. I had ambition. I had some brains. I had lots of desire to work hard and succeed. All of that coming together, when I went into business, I was able to get initially small jobs. Those small jobs, opportunities to bid on larger projects where my quality of execution got me privilege of participating in the development. So initially, I worked for developers, people like Harry Suna, where under the participation loan program of the city of New York, he was renovating buildings up in the South Bronx on Brady Avenue. And then I worked with another gentleman by the name of Arthur Leeds, who had been designated vacant loan program projects back also in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. And I, after constructing for them, became a minority partner in their developments. And then ultimately, I learned by observing again and participating as a minority partner, the development process, and then began to respond to RFPs from the various city and state entities on my own account. And I was able to do projects as the developer myself, very often using my previous partners who were thrilled to be working with me as my equity investors in my deals. Frankly speaking, until my deals became so large as I ventured into the private sector development space, that their uh, sourcing of funds was not sufficient, at which time, you may recall, I began to partner with the likes of insurance companies and pension funds for my larger projects, be it in Williamsburg or in West Chelsea or the Hudson Yards. So you're not um, an overnight success. You basically <laughs> spent your younger, your formative years being mentored by Mendel. You kind of rolled up your sleeves. You had hands-on experience. And you worked your way up. I mean, I think a lot of people, especially the younger generation now, kind of look at these developers and think, okay, you just made it overnight and, uh, you know, they want to do it. And it's, it's an overnight success. Well, I have an expression that I share with my children. As you know, my son, Benjamin, has been working with us here at Douglas in Development for the past 12 years since he graduated UPenn, did a brief stint with finance at Grand Swiss First Boston. Then my daughter, Jessica, who also graduated UPenn, went on to Oxford, and then got her MBA at Columbia. She has been working with me for three years. Ben is primarily in my market rate and hospitality end of the business. My daughter, Jessica, has a, a passion for the affordable end of the business and the social aspects of it. And I often say to them, as has been the case with me, that he or she that does the heavy lifting gets the muscle. So there's no greater experience, there's no greater teacher than experience itself. And from experience, you learn what to do and more important, what not to do. Never make the same mistake twice, but making it once is definitely a good learning experience. So how long have you been in business then, the development business? As I said, well, the development business actually almost from the very beginning in the early 80s. You know, I started with Levine Builders in the 79. And then we participated in development as well as property management, but not in a uniquely identified way. We had our own staff do that work. But as we evolved, it became clear that because we were relying on capital from institutional sources, it was critical for our construction company, our development company, and our property management company 
to be individual silos with complete transparency and complete responsibility to one another in a very transparent fashion. So we created the three separate entities of Levine Builders, Douglas in Development, and Clinton Management. So again, we could have full contractual relationships and have transparency to our equity partners. And also, it created, while the synergy of being a vertically integrated company with all three components, but it also created lines of liability and responsibility so everybody was held accountable for their actions to one another, creating an efficiency of operation. Right. So how big are you guys now? How many projects have you done? How much real estate do you own? What do you have in the pipeline? Okay, that's a very direct question. So, you know, we have... Well, you're, you're a straight shooter. The thing I love about yes. you, Jeff, is you're, you're a straight shooter. You kind of are unfiltered and, you know, you tell it the way it is, uh, well, which I really respect and appreciate. I thank you for saying that. And again, it's much easier to remember the facts than the fictions. But so my facts are very simple. I just had an article printed about the company. And in it, I read, because we had to do, I guess, accounting for that presentation, that just in the last 10 years, it appears that we've created over 4,000 units of housing. Yeah. My pipeline, as you know, has become very diverse over the years. I like to state emphatically that I'm willing to do a project of any size so long as it makes economic sense. I don't know if you ever heard my Tinkerbell, but what I like to say is that I, as a developer, am like Tinkerbell in Peter Pan. As you know, Tinkerbell only exists so long as the children believe. You remember that, don't you? You have children. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I, as a developer, only exist as my equity lenders and senior lenders believe that I am capable. So the only way for me that I know of to make my banks believe that I'm capable is to give them the numbers, to give them the metric that they need in order to support the equity investment and the loans that I need to do my project. So let me ask you, so I, this is a very direct question. Yeah. So you're definitely a significant developer. You've done over 4,000 units. You've been very successful. Please don't take this the wrong way. I actually mean it as a compliment. Why is Douglaston development kind of been under the radar compared to some of the larger brands, larger in brand, not in, you know, the amount of business that they've transacted? Um, it seems like, you know, you have no ego. It's about the business. It's about doing your job in a very old school, effective way. And, you know, now you have some of these younger developers who are more interested in the ego, the brand, they've done less less work. Why why don't we hear much more from you? We we hear very little from you. We see your projects and um you're not out there in in the public eye as much. Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, you talk about being on the radar. When I think of being in the radar, the word that comes to my mind by association is being a target. I'm not interested in publicity for publicity's sake. Um, the people who I need to know and who need to know me are those people that I am conducting business with. When it comes to the lenders, the equity people, they know very well who I am. They know very well how I behave and how I produce. It's important for me that they know about our character, our integrity, and our capabilities. And those people that I need to know absolutely do know. So that's more than enough for me. Right. I, we are doing, you talked about our 
backlog of work going forward. I started to say, look, we are doing the largest project to my career to date as we speak. We just broke ground on a 1 million square foot, 940 unit, 7525 market rate affordable multifamily rental over at 30th Street and 11th Avenue, diagonally across from the new Hudson Yards. As you may recall, over 10 or 12 years ago, I built a project at that location under the old 421A8020 scenario, which was a roughly 400 unit multifamily. And when I built that project in what was to become the shadow of the Hudson Yards, there were no shadows because there was no Hudson Yards. Yeah, so I wanted to, I want to stop you there for a second and talk about that because that's that's really that was defining for that neighborhood. And quite frankly, a lot of people thought you'd lost your mind because that bill that project took a lot of balls. Just like the project in Williamsburg that you did, it was kind of a ballsy move, but in hindsight, brilliant. Just like the one you did in Hudson Yards, brilliant. But you know, you didn't have the luxury of being able to look back because you were pioneering. So let's go back a little bit before that. Let's talk about your projects on the waterfront in Williamsburg. How did you know Williamsburg? How did you see that that neighborhood was going to become one of the most prime neighborhoods in New York City? Almost like, you you know, if you do something once, it's lucky, but you've done it again and again and again and again. I'd like to know what your secret is or how you look at a project um, maybe you could tell me a little bit about Williamsburg and then Hudson Yards, why you felt that those two projects specifically would be so successful, because you were probably the only person in that moment who took that bet and actually had the courage of your conviction to proceed in those projects. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Williamsburg was, you know, we talked briefly about the fact how I have been involved in the affordable housing sector. And I have for 40 years been involved in almost every program that the city and state of New York have put forth to create affordable housing. I have always been proud to be involved in creating affordable housing that helps the diverse people of New York live in a way that is acceptable. And I have never left that business. That business at some times brought me to areas such as Williamsburg. I built new homes for sale on the housing partnership programs going back to the 80s in Williamsburg and in South Williamsburg. And I saw the neighborhood had the bones to be a great residential market rate neighborhood. Why? Number one, because it was already a residential community, albeit in many cases an ethnic community of Eastern European immigrants, formerly the working people who used to come into Manhattan and be the porters and be the janitors and be the constructors. And they lived in Williamsburg and Greenpoint because of its close proximity to employment and its wonderful transportation network. Well, that holds true today for the next group of working people, be they hospitality, IT, whatever the case may be. They are now living in Williamsburg and Greenpoint and other parts of the East River over in the Brooklyn, Queens waterfront, Long Island City specifically today, and commuting it to New York. So I Yeah, but that. but you you built luxury housing. You 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 kind of brought a new kind of housing to that part of New York City which had never been delivered before. And then well, when you I, started selling, you sold at record prices. Well, I didn't sell at record prices day one, as you recall, which may in fact be added to we when we delivered their job, we tied that property up. It's very interesting. I must tell you something. The terrible tragedy 
of uh, the World Trade Center greatly impacted my thought process as the developer. I was building what was to that time the largest multifamily rental of my career over 50th Street. It was 100 some odd units between 8th and 9th. And I was about to deliver the project in the fourth quarter of 01 when the terrible terrorist tragedy occurred. I had a full recourse loan to the Bank of New York at the time. And I thought, I am no way going to rent this unit in this psychology of fear and exodus of jobs that it appeared would be occurring in New York City. Lo and behold, that is not what happened. Yes, there was a, a moment of shock to us all. But in the long term, the greatness of our city and our country prevailed. And New York City remained strong. I rented up those units, partially due to luck. And I will always tell you that an important part of the uh, secret sauce for success is luck. And nobody should ever lose sight of that. What happened is Morgan Stanley moved uptown. It was a close proximity to my project on 50th Street. And that helped me lease up that building. It helped me go and secure a permanent mortgage, pay my loan, and go on to the next. Well, that gave me a surge of confidence in New York City that motivated me not only to buy the waterfront piece subject to a rezoning in Williamsburg. Um, no, excuse me. I didn't buy that subject to rezoning. I bought it without subject to the rezoning, as well as to tie up the property in West Chelsea for the OM. So those were the two big projects that, frankly, at that moment, resulted from my confidence and my adrenaline about New York City as it recovered from the 9-11 tragedies. You're telling it to me now. It still seems like a really ballsy move. You know, not a lot of people would have done that. Would you say that a big part of development, yes, luck is, is involved and markets obviously have a huge effect. But, you know, you kind of have to be a risk taker, right? Well, you have to be a risk taker. And, you know, when I say luck, luck affects the outcome by degrees. But, you know, the old expression that uh, a high tide floats all boats, a low tide does not sink all boats. If you buy well, build well, operate well, you can survive, as I have learned, the downturns because you're more effective and more efficient where others may not. Remember, we are one of the few remaining owner-builder managers. We actually construct our own projects, which I believe gives us a cost advantage over some of our competitors. Um, and while that doesn't always make the difference, it does in a downturn. Um, the fact that we build cost-effectively helps us not only secure our loans, but helps us operate at lower revenues during the downturn, letting us stay around for the sunny day. Right, right. So, well, I, I don't know. Is it so sunny out there? I mean, I think the general consensus now is that it's not that sunny. We're in a downturn. What, what do you see when you look out there? Okay, well, if you are just realizing now that we're in a downturn, you are missing the bigger picture. We are in a downturn. We've been in a downturn going back to probably 2017 when it became apparent that the condominiums which were flooding the market were not selling with the velocity that all the banks and the developers had anticipated. Unfortunately, the banks didn't get that news until sometime in 18 and continued to fund jobs. But the truth of the matter is the latter part of 18 and 19, banks have stopped funding. So construction of condominiums stopped new construction funding. Um, those projects that are being built, are, as you and I both know, 
are not being well received because of the fear of the economy and the marketplace right now. Obviously, our federal and our city and state governments have not helped the condominium world. The elimination of state and local the tax deductions, uh, as well as the cap on mortgage interest deductions here in New York State have severely impacted the buying pool. And when you add to that the disparate taxation that we are exposed to for new development in New York, when new product is taxed at something probably in excess of 2% of value and that the lack of tax abatement applicability to condominiums, because it's impossible to structure today a condominium with an affordable component within it to get to the tax abatement, which is necessary as a band-aid over the excess taxation, we have a serious problem. And I don't think it's going to go away overnight. I think you're going to have to see continuing decrease in condominium values. And now, if that's not enough bad news, you and I know that the rental market has just gotten a gut shot from the state legislature in connection with the elimination of a number of methods of rent increase, be it vacancy decontrol, luxury decontrol, IAIs, MCIs, you name it, other than Rent Guidelines Board's annual increase, which in the last few years have been stacked against the developer on behalf of the tenant, it's very difficult to pencil out new development work for multifamily rental. In addition to that, the fact of the matter is that the new affordable New York State tax abatement replacing the old 421A also makes it absurd to do new residential rentals because land, while it is no longer selling for condominiums at the absurd seven, eight hundred, nine hundred dollars a foot that we saw going back to 16 and 17, it has not fallen anywhere near sufficiently to do a rental. Because as I said before, the taxation of New York City on new rentals makes it necessary to get the band-aid of a tax abatement, this tax abatement, which was includes either 25 or 30% affordability, as well as certain required wage standards for certain projects in Manhattan and on the East River side of Brooklyn and Queens. It's a disaster. Things don't pencil and you're not going to be seeing multifamily being done. You will continue to have affordable housing, but there is a limit to how much affordable city the great agencies of New York can produce, HBD, HDC, EDC, with the funds they have available. So right. I think that the immediate future for construction in New York is bleak. I think that we will be building cheaper and hopefully the combination at some point of the city coming to its senses, of the state coming to its senses. I don't know if the federal government will ever come to its senses, coupled with a lowering of construction costs because of the lack of work and landowners who overpaid, whether they have to lose it to their lender, to their equity partner, to the mezzanine lender. And, so, and when people start to accept the reality of the value, I think then you may see development start again. But I think we're going to see a bleak few years for development in New York. Yeah, but there's such a huge pipeline of inventory, right? There, there are thousands of units that are currently under construction. You know, I think there's, there's going to be a lot of inventory coming to the market. So it's not as if we're going to be in a market where there's no inventory. Oh, absolutely. I'm saying condos have a long way to continue downward. I mean, listen, if you do the math, I often ask people, are you aware of how many Tax-paying residents of New York City earn more than a million dollars a year. Are you aware? In a city of 
5 million people, there are less than 40,000 people who earn more than a million dollars a year. And the reason I use that figure today, today, in order to buy a condominium, which they're trying to sell in the vicinity of $3,000 a foot, if the condominium is roughly 1,500 square feet for an oversized two bed, you're talking about a purchase price of $4.5 million. When you add your taxes and your maintenance, you have to add another $150,000 a year, I believe, at a minimum. If you put down 20% of that $4.5 million, your mortgage of roughly $3.5 million at 5% is going to cost you roughly another $200,000 with some amortization. So you're earning $350,000. You're paying $350,000 for the privilege of living in that apartment now. Having said that, if you stick to the rule of thumb that you should pay no more than a third, which, of course, nobody does anymore, of your revenue for your shelter, well, you need to earn a million dollars to live there. And of those 40,000 people that earn a million dollars a year, most of them are very content in their existing residence. And if you add to that the world's geopolitical situation where you have China holding back on investments and holding back on their residence investments in New York, you have the conflicts with Russia where the oligarchs, for reasons of criminal activity, whatever the case may be, are not investing in New York. In general, the international pool with the collapse of oil from the Middle East and from South America, all of a sudden is quite impaired. So I am extremely concerned about the sale of the Uber luxury condos and even the luxury condos, which are those that used to be up to 2,500 a foot, which, as you know, are not even selling for 2,500 a foot. They're being drawn back to you know the 2,000 number. And it's impossible to do a new condo projecting a sales price of 2000 which is why I do not think that there will be new condos built until this glut on the market starts to disappear. Yeah, but then where are these, where are the people who can afford these new condos in the next cycle? Where are they coming from? And how do we get out of this mess? That is a mystery, isn't it? You know, it's really very interesting. Maybe it's just a correction that we need to start again, unfortunately to spread out the pain, and then we go from a level that makes sense going forward. I mean, you know, we all know this. I was, I was talking to my son the other day, and, you know, they were commenting about the fact that people are buying art and the stock market is an all-time high. Well, what I have said in the past is all money is goes to all assets. So right now, because of low interest rates and the markets, the securities, of real estate, of art, are all approaching all-time high. Um, obviously, we know the condos have ceased selling, but people have recognized that and lowered the prices. I believe that we will have a correction, that there will be a securities correction. Interest rates, I don't see going up anytime soon. If we, at this point in our uh, economy, have the lowest interest rates any of us recall, we're near the highest stock market any of us recall, and things are not selling you Nothing can get rosier from here. I'm, own, I'm afraid it can only get more dark. So I'm being very cautious. You know, people often ask, and you haven't asked it yet, what do you see about development in Europe? I think it made it very clear. I look, I kiss a lot of frogs, I run a lot of numbers, and unless I can achieve the type of returns that I need to achieve to induce money to come, which, you know, is just under 6% cash on cost of the rental, I will not do a condo because I'm not confident in the condo market. Unless I can achieve those metrics, I'm not going to do anything in New York other than the affordable work, which I have always done and will continue to do. 
because with the subsidies and the vast demand for low income housing and moderate income housing in New York, that is an easy market to work in, even though the risk, the rewards are not as great. The risk reward scenario is far more in keeping with what I'm comfortable with. You, you said you're building your largest project of your career. It's a million square feet. Um, right. Clearly, you, you see that as an opportunity. You know, I think in bad markets, th- there are probably more opportunities for smarter people than when the markets are doing well. Well, this was an opportunity that evolved six years ago when I tied the property up subject to a rezoning, which we worked diligently on for the last four to five years. So it's not a, an overnight project, much like our career. We approached this rezoning six years ago during the Bloomberg administration. It didn't occur until the de Blasio administration did all of the things that it was doing, which was uh, establishing a new 421A, doing the um, quality housing. So it took quite a while for this to come to fruition. And we're happy that it's coming to fruition now at a time when the state and city rent regulations have made it impossible to do other new multifamily rental for the foreseeable future. So, you know, that's, again, a long-term success story, not an overturn success story. I do believe that you're right. In a correction, land prices will correct, production prices will correct. Hopefully the government will see the problem. If you go back to the collapse of New York back in the 70s, and when our illustrious Mayor Koch had come to office in 79, he created the 421A tax abatement. Why? Because he saw that the market needed to be stimulated. Well, at some point, I am hoping that elected officials will recognize that we've gone too far to the left. We have to come back to the center in order to get the development that we need to create housing for not only the working people, but for all people of New York City. So would you ever consider running for uh, public office? Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm very content. I'm very content at this stage of my life to continue to work diligently, which I enjoy and love what I do, and to spend as much time as I can with my children, my granddaughter, and my wonderful wife. (laughs) So, I mean, something I love, you know, when I talk to you is you always have a lot of energy. You're how old are you, by the way? I'm 65 years old. Well, you're 65 years young because when I talk to you, you've got more energy than a lot of people in their 30s. Um, you're very educated. You always seem to be learning more. You're, you're very open-minded, which, which I really appreciate. What is it that gets you up in the morning? What is it that drives you? Okay, what drives me is obviously business uh, is always fun. You know, building buildings, getting that sense of accomplishment, great. My wife and I have been very active in the worlds of philanthropy. We each have our own passions. I, as you may know, I uh, have been president. Now I'm chairman of the Jewish National Fund of the United States. I am on the board of St. Mary's Children's Hospital. We have a gala coming up where I got my good friend, Frank Siami, who also went to City College with me to be our honoree. I'm very happy about that. My wife is on the board of the National Portrait Gallery of the Smithsonian. And she and I, in fact, are the chair of this year's gala on November 17th, which we're very excited about. Among others, Jeff Bezos is being honored. We have Lynn manuel Miranda being honored, Anna Wintour, Earth, Wind, and Fire. So, you know, we like to be busy with our family, our charity, and, of course, the business. And so long as God gives me the strength, I'm happy. As you know, we just finished Yom Kippur yesterday. We're in the midst of the high holidays. 
And so I want to wish everybody who listens, I hope it's a lot of people, a happy, a healthy, and a sweet new year. <laughs> and happy new year to you and your family. I'm going to ask you a couple of one-word answer questions to finish this out. Um, sure. What's your favorite building in, your, in the world? Well, if you go back in the world, oh, you varied. It used to be in the U.S. If you remember, you asked me that question. I know it's a one word. Right. <laughs> I answered the question on your podcast 10 or 12 years ago with the Woolworth building. It's still amongst my favorites. It joined the engineering of high-rise building and elevators and lighting with the Gothic construction of churches, and it's a one of a kind. Good choice. It's, uh, it's one of my favorites, too. Um, uh, what is your greatest strength? I guess it's persistence. <laughs> Great answer. What's your greatest weakness? If I had to identify my greatest weaknesses is I do not show my love for the people I care for as much as I should. Okay. Good answer. Last question. What advice would you give to someone who wants to be the next Jeff Levine? Someone who wants to come into this market, uh, you're finishing college or you're going into college and you're looking at New York City. What would you tell this person? I would tell them that if I were to be asked what is the key to being successful in real estate or any business for that matter, it's hard work, it's integrity, and it is persistence. Sounds great. Those are great morals to live by. It's a little bit more difficult in the world today when we look around and we see that maybe some of those things are not rewarded uh, or, or it's the appearance of them optically are not rewarded as much, but um, definitely good things to live by. Jeff, um, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure speaking to you. Um, this was really interesting. I wish you the very best for the next 65 years. I'm looking forward to seeing great things from you. Um, one last question. What's the next neighborhood? <laughs> well, I actually am asked that question often. I'm sure because you're the guy who <laughs> sees the next neighborhood. You've done it again and again and again, and you've been right. I will tell you. Again, I am concerned about the market right now. Ultimately, the next neighborhood will be those communities that are served by transportation for commutation to employment. And, you know, there are people going up to the Bronx. I think it may be somewhat premature. As you know, I do a lot of affordable housing in the Bronx. And there are people going deeper into Brooklyn and Queens. And eventually that will happen, as they all do. But when I like to answer that question, it's very simple. It's, remember once, I guess it was Horace Greeley, was that his name? Say, go west. I'm <laughs> saying, go old. I have been in the independent assisted living business for over 30 years. 30 years ago, or 20 some years ago in New York, we built along with what was Captain Senior Quarters and ultimately became Atria. We built Atria Riverdale, Atria Gardens, and I ultimately sold out. But I got into the business in a much bigger way out in Arizona in the Phoenix Metro. And we have been building independent and assisted living with memory care component for seniors in the Phoenix Metro for the past 30 years. We own and operate over 1,500 units. And we continue, we're about to break ground on another 250 units in the northwest of the Phoenix Metro. Why? Because Phoenix is an area where people retire to because of the low cost of living and the weather primarily over 30 years ago. Those retirees who went there at 55 and 65 years of age are now, whether it was Sun City West or Sun City or Trilogy, are now aging into the need to have independent assisted living, as is across our nation, 
the baby boom. The baby boom, which began in 46 after the Second World War, is now approaching 75. And it's only in their 80s, their early 80s, that independent assisted living becomes ideal for them. So I think that the demand for independent assisted living going forward is the place that you would like to place your dollars. Well, that sucks for me because I market and sell luxury condos. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to hit a... Adapt. I'm an adept. Correct. Great advice. I think that's the way we should leave this. Adapt. Um, something that I would say to everybody, having you know run core for 15 years, having been in the industry for 30 years, is adapt or die is definitely a valid, valid way to live your life if you want to survive and be successful. Jeff, thank you so much. This was really great chatting with you. Congratulations again on everything that you've achieved. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing more of what you bring to market over the next coming years. Thank you so much. I thank you. It's always my pleasure to speak to you as well, Sean. All right. Take care. Take speak care. to you soon. Thanks, Great. Jeff. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Well, that was Jeff Levine. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, I want to apologize because there were some glitches in the sound, but I think you get the gist of it. And uh, I'm really excited to be continuing to do this because I have a lot of these conversations with all different types of people and it's going to be fun to bring some of these to you. And uh, and I thought that was really insightful. I could sit with Jeff on the phone literally for three hours, but I think this is a good snapshot of who he is, the way he thinks, and a little bit about what makes him tick. So I hope you enjoyed it. I'm really looking forward to the next one. We've got an awesome guest someone who's very entertaining very educated and i'm looking forward to bringing that to you so have a great week and speak to you guys soon 